0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book, and print cultures, stamping, problems. You are
0: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research
1: Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating 10 years created by Carl Tsipras the,
0: Start Change the Hub is about impact.
2: 90%. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the School of Creative Arts Research Forum on this beautiful, actually gorgeous Monday morning. Um, I hope that after this you get a chance to, to get a little walk outside. Um, I am really delighted uh, to be able to introduce our presenter this morning. Um, just remember, as always, our presentation will be followed by a QA. and uh, a and our Q&A moderator today is Dr. Catlin Mara-Rosa. Catlin uh, is a research fellow in the film department and is funded by the IRS see. Uh, you may remember her from the presentation on the body in battle and body confined corporeal representations in cinema of late 20th century conflicts in Northern Ireland and Brazil that she gave uh, that she graced us with uh, last December. Uh, and now she is um, kind enough to be back to moderate for us um, on today for today's scarf. So thank you, Ketlyn. And now to our presenter. Our presenter this morning is Dr. Dennis Murphy. He is a Government of Ireland Research Fellow in the Department of Film here at Trinity. He lectures in screen production here, and he's also previously lectured at DCU and Maynooth University. Additionally, keep your eyes out because he has a book coming up on the labor history of Irish film to be published by Liverpool University Press. So stay tuned. I will now hand it over to Dennis. Thank you so much.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Courtney. And uh, thanks everyone for logging in today. Uh, uh, Let me just get my screen share working here. Every week we practiced all this earlier. So hopefully it all works. Uh, Portion of screen, bear with me folks, of course it doesn't work the way it did five seconds ago. Okay, you should be seeing the beginning of my slide there, are we all all okay with that? Okay, uh, great, so Just to uh, reintroduce myself, I'm Dennis Murphy, and and this morning I want to talk about this uh, labour history of Irish screen production, which I suppose began with my PhD at DCU, uh, completed in 2016, and now continues as I get ready to take up this uh, IRC postdoc that Courtney referred to, which will be focused on preparing uh, the research for book publication. So again, the the book that... uh, Uh, Courtney mentioned uh, which hopefully will come out in about two years time so don't hold your breath uh, from uh, Liverpool University Press all going well. Now I hope you don't mind but seeing as this is a research forum with many of you you know actively pursuing your own projects at various stages I've approached this presentation this morning as a kind of exploration of the evolving uh, research process. so rather than just jumping into presenting the final product, which of course I can't do anyway, because you know I'm far from finished and there's still a lot of work to do. So what is it all about? Well, I'm writing a history of screen production in Ireland. And by screen production, I mean primarily the making of film and television drama since 1958. And in this presentation, I'll probably end up using the terms screen, film, television, drama production interchangeably, uh, with references also at times to advertising production. But I'm always talking about the same people as these sectors have a considerable overlap in terms of the people doing the actual production work. So by labor history also, I mean the story, I mean that this story is told from the point of view of screen industry workers. So as some of you, would probably have noticed the starting point that I've chosen, 1958, is the year when Ardmore Studios uh, were established in Bray in County Wicklow. Uh, now, film historians will know that this is not grand zero for film production in Ireland, which dates, you know, right back to the earliest years of the 20th century. But Ardmore does represent the beginnings of formal film policy in Ireland as the state made moves to uh, build an industry here that might at least partly be based on foreign direct investment. The idea was that Ardmore might act as a kind of advanced factory, you know, with a modern facility built to make Irish films, but also partly to encourage international film producers to come here and make some of their films here. Uh, And in fact, you know, some of them have been doing that uh, and had been since the silent film era. I should note, actually, by the way, also at the outset, that I have a personal interest in this area, as I spent many years myself uh, as a media worker, uh, beginning my career as a video editor, working in cable television and local news production, or local news promotion, rather, in the US, uh, then in the corporate and uh, Advertising sectors in Ireland before leaving the industry to uh, pursue, you know, a late career change into uh, into academia. So for the past couple of years, I suppose I've been describing myself as, you know, the world's oldest entry-level academic, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity and, of course, the funding to work on the book, which, uh, as I as we hope, uh, will will be published sometime in 2023. 23 and for this work I'm delighted to be attached again to the department of film here at trinity uh, under the mentorship of Ruth Barton who I've worked with previously uh, on the ecologies of cultural production project which finished up about a year ago so that's just to let give you a little bit of a flavor about where I'm coming from and where I'm heading and hopefully uh I'll be commencing the work discussed here in September, having deferred the fellowship actually for a year, because I'm hoping things will become a little more normal towards the end of this year, making it easier to do some of the uh, remaining archival research that needs to be done for this project. So this morning, I really just want to introduce the research that I'm doing. We'll talk a little bit about the labor history approach, a little bit about the industry I'm examining, a little bit about the data sources I'm using, and then a little bit about the narrative that's starting to emerge from this research, uh, loosely divided by decade. So this should give you a flavor of what I'm doing, and I look forward to discussing the work in more detail maybe next year, and hopefully, of course, we'll be able to do it face-to-face at that stage. So let's just start with a few observations about this labor history focus and forgive me if some of this seems a little obvious and basic but it's actually useful for me because it helps me to go back I suppose to first principles as I return to this project after a few years away having completed the kind of underlying original draft of this research nearly 5 years ago. So what I want to produce is uh a historical account that's based on the thoughts and actions of workers, rather than the companies and the organisations that employ them. This approach is sometimes seen, I suppose, to be in opposition, although I prefer to think of it as complementary to uh, so-called great man theories, and they usually are all men when it comes to, you know, film industry histories. but great man theories that prioritize the actions and thoughts of influential historical figures. So, you know, like Hitler or Churchill, uh, if you're writing a World War II history or Spielberg or Hitchcock uh, or the likes when you're talking about film history. So the hope then is to produce a a bottom-up account of historical events. One that takes into account the contribution of ordinary social actors at the bottom, as well as the maybe elite figures at the top of the screen production food chain. And there's no doubt that there have been people who have driven this history more than others, although not always the figures that tend to come to mind at first. So this bottom-up of a bottom-up approach introduces the concept of the masses rather than elites as the moving forces in the historical process. And this observation from Ian Turner the noted Australian uh, political activist. Now, of course, anyone who knows anything about the film industry in Ireland may well be raising an eyebrow at all this talk about masses and, you know, the associated link, I suppose, to working class labour because screen production with the sheer diversity of the types of work involved tends to transcend obvious class divisions. You know, you have working class set construction and and craft workers like carpenters, painters, metal workers, and so on. Then you have technicians uh, and, you know, like camera and sound crew, uh, directors and assistant directors. You have art directors and designers, you know, these are all thought of, I suppose, as more middle class occupations, although, of course, not exclusively. So, the labor history of Irish screen production is not always best represented in terms of conflict between classes, uh, between film workers and their employers who are film producers. And in fact, as shall emerge, there are some striking examples in screen production uh, where class interests have been overridden by the collective interests of producers and film workers alike in their joint efforts uh, to build. An the industry to advance the conditions for film and TV drama production in Ireland. So it's not all about class conflict, although it sometimes is, and it's important not to forget that. So when we say building an industry in their joint interests, what industry or industries are we talking about? Well, very loosely, the screen industries, or rather the screen industries that I'm interested in, uh, comprise the separate but related sub-industries that make feature films like Michael Collins or The Guard, documentaries like uh, you know Song of Granite or The Road to God Knows Where, animated films like uh, The Secret of Kells or Wolfwalkers. Uh, and then of course, television drama series like Love Hate or The Tudors. And because people who make these kind of projects also sometimes work there, I'm also slightly interested in the advertising and the multimedia industries. So when I talk about screen workers, how many people are we actually talking about? I'm most interested in film and TV production technicians, craft workers, and uh, to a lesser extent, actors. Uh, And these are workers who are generally employed on short-term contract basis sometimes considered freelance, but as I've learned, freelance is often a dirty word uh, in Irish trade union circles, especially, as one union rep told me, we're all freelance when we're unemployed. Uh, And the distinction between freelance and employee is is often quite contentious, as it affects the obligations that employers have towards the people they employ. And it also affects the employment rights and other benefits that more traditional employees enjoy. How big is this sector? You know, who, you know, how many people are we talking about? Well, if you observe the Irish screen industries, you'll hear a lot of numbers bandied about. There's a reference, for example, on the Screen Ireland website to the sector employing directly or indirectly uh, about 12,000 people. Part of this project, part of my project, of course, involves questioning these figures, digging into them a little, uh, seeing where the numbers come from and trying to make a critical distinction between industry research and industry public relations. And also being aware of and critical of official reports where sometimes the size of the industry can be inflated Uh, by adding on additional sectors for instance which can sometimes make it look like employment growth is happening when really it isn't. Uh, So for instance in 2011 there was a report called Creative Capital in which a goal was declared to increase industry direct employment from 5,440 to 10,000 by the year 2016. This figure of 5,440 Uh, comes from a survey carried out by PricewaterhouseCoopers on behalf of the Irish Film Board in 2007. And I actually took part in this survey myself uh, because I I was working in the audiovisual industry at the time. And this survey reported that the sector employed around 7,000 individuals in total. And as you can see from the breakdown in this slide here, about 3,000 of these were freelance. And because freelancers don't work all the time, their actual work amounted to about 1,650 full-time equivalent jobs, or FTEs. This is a term you often see in these reports. So between these two types of employee, you get this figure down the bottom right of this uh, table here of 5,440 jobs in 2008. So how did the creative capital policy of doubling these numbers Uh, work out. You know, this is an example of what we're talking about earlier. And amazingly, the Spy-Alsberg report uh, released in 2017 seemed to demonstrate that the industry had done just that, reporting a direct employment figure of well over 10,000 full-time equivalent jobs. But you don't have to look very closely to see that this figure was arrived at by effectively expanding the scope of the industry to include, for example, games and radio, sectors not included in the original numbers uh, we mentioned earlier. They also included additional parts of the film, uh, animation, and commercial sectors. So for instance, people working in cinemas, by adding them, that bumped up the number of employees by, you know, about a thousand people. Now I don't want to get too much into the nitty-gritty of this kind of thing here, I just want to demonstrate, I suppose, the necessity as we all, of course, as researchers know, to query these official figures and reports. Because these numbers, and then the even larger numbers when you include uh, indirect and induced employment, uh, you know, the numbers that the, these numbers grow into, they quickly become treated quite uncritically as fact in subsequent reports on industry websites and especially in the press. Uh, and you often see this kind of growth put forward as justification for increasing industry subsidy. For instance, you know there's currently a campaign to increase the cap on Section 481, the tax credit system, uh, and any and, you know a lot of the narrative around this, you know, mentions these figures of uh, you know 10 to 12,000 workers. So just to talk a little bit more about this sector, I want to go back briefly to some of the stats from the, the 27, 2007 survey, which is really the only uh, study of its kind done to date. And also some, you know, combining it actually with some data from IBEC, uh, the uh, the business uh, lobby that used to compile some, some industry data, which sadly has been discontinued for, for the last de- decade or so. But we can see that the 3,016 freelance workers we were talking about earlier uh, shared about 13,000 individual work contracts uh, between them in, in the year in question, 2007, So, the, and that's in the course of generating the 1,659 FTE jobs. That's an average of about four or five projects per year. But so that means you know, freelancers are working on four or five projects a, a year, but nevertheless, as a group, they were still on average only working uh, about 55% of the time. So this partly explains the average reported earnings of 28,500, which was, you know, I suppose it explains why the, uh, this, this average, excuse me, was a little bit less than the average uh, industrial wage uh, at the time. We can also see some evidence of inequality uh, in the demographics. Uh, you know, 90% uh, or less than 10% of workers were aged 50 or above, and the workforce was also predominantly male, which isn't great news if you're a woman uh, looking to break into the industry, especially if you're not looking to get into roles. <coughs> Like hair or makeup, you know, which are among the uh, few occupations that are dominated by female employees. So the screen workforce is quite gendered. Also, at the time of the survey, interesting to note that uh, the vast majority of people were not in the trade union. Uh, This represented a remarkable decline actually at the time. So to me, uh, and and those of us looking at the the industry, these were quite interesting stats. And I think it behooves us as academics uh, to remind our students Mm -hmm. who might be interested in working in the sector of some of these realities. And note that these figures can depart quite radically from the kind of celebratory accounts of film work as quality employment that you sometimes see. So in the year 20, and seven, sorry, 2017, we had about 6,000 freelance film and TV workers, which is the group I'm mostly interested in, in my study. This equated to about 3,300 full-time jobs. This was an interesting, and I suppose in itself uh, observation, interesting in itself because the period between 2008 and 2017, of course, included the global financial crisis. So we can see right away that in terms of employment, at least, the screen industries fared quite well during a time when a lot of other industries were under needs. So employment, as measured in full-time jobs, seems to have increased quite dramatically in recent years least according to these official figures. Part of my research is, you know, we'll be asking why, you know, what's going on at the moment to explain this additional employment. (coughs) Okay, are we doing time-wise? Okay, we're about halfway through, so I think we're more or less on schedule. So, A few words now about the kind of data sources I'm using in the research. Uh, I'll be looking at official state sources from the National Archives, uh, including some very detailed files related to films made at Ardmore Studio in the 1960s. And I've just actually completed uh, a journal article based on these, which will be published in a little while in the Historical Journal of Film, Radio, and Television. I'm also using the archives of the Irish Film Institute, particularly in relation to film worker organisations in the 1970s and 1980s, some really interesting data available there. And I've included some historic trade union materials from the Irish Actors' Equity Collection at UCD. uh, and also at the SIPTU Archive in, at SIPTU coll- College over at the uh, South Circular Road and also at the Labour History Archive uh, at the uh, uh, at Beggar's Bush barr- Barracks there just uh, in Dublin Two. These sources make it possible to construct an account based on the written concerns of film workers, film worker associations, trade unions, film producers, And maybe to a lesser extent, the state, based on contemporaneous letters, meeting minutes, uh, notes, and other sources. Uh, And I supplement this with uh, newspaper accounts, mainly from the Irish Times. And I've also conducted about 20 interviews with film workers, producers, and union officials, you know, primarily to fill in some of the gaps. So you can see there. Fairly diverse mix of primary and secondary sources, mostly primary. By the way, I don't know how much archival research uh, you, you, many of you have done uh, in the past, but it can be quite an interesting process. And I spent a lot of long days and weeks, for instance, uh, in, in the SIP2 archive, which before I went in, <laughs> I imagined might look something like uh, the photograph here on the right, but the reality was quite different. Uh, This is an actual photo of some of the materials I needed to examine. And of course the box I needed the most would invariably be at the bottom of that pile, you know, one of those piles. So I did quite a lot of of literal heavy lifting uh, in the drafty old shed that houses these valuable historic records. And I really do hope that they haven't deteriorated too much in the years since, but it was great to actually have the opportunity to look for materials here. But part of the challenge, of course, is trying to find them without a reliable catalogue. You know, it's a very hit and miss process, very, very time consuming, but at the same time very exhilarating when you do find uh, materials of interest, you know, you really feel that you're doing something really kind of difficult and, and, and valuable. So that's a good bit on the background to the research, which I tried to boil down, I suppose, to this essential question, based around the old reliable, you know, who, what, where and when questions. So in the Irish screen industries, who gets to work on what, for whom, with whom, and under what conditions. I suppose any of you who are interested in political economy will note the emphasis here, maybe, on power relations between film workers and film employers. And I'm also interested in expanding this out to relations with the state in terms of the contributions of all these groups to the making of official screen policy in Ireland, you know, the legislation underpinning the film board, uh, which is now Screen Ireland, and, you know, the lobby for other supports that the industry now has, such as the tax credits and other issues that have cropped up over the the period in question. A lot of of these issues, of course, in the past two decades tending to revolve around uh, questions of employment rights and uh, quality employment. So let's take a look now at the at some of the history that emerges from this approach. And of course, this covers mainly the work done to date, which will be expanded during the postdocs. So I'll just present the, I suppose, part of the big picture that emerges on a decade-by-decade basis. And we start with the late 1950s and 60s when Irish film workers, the small number of them that existed found it quite difficult to get work on the films that started to arrive into the new Ardmore studios. And these were mostly British films. And so British trade unions were fighting really hard to prevent any loss of British labor uh, by insisting that British workers should get most of the work on these Ardmore films. And you, know, you could argue, and as they did, that this was quite justified because a lot of these UK films were actually funded by uh, a levy on cinema admissions in, in Britain. So this led to a very high profile strike, which is still the most significant in Irish film history that ultimately put Ardmore Studios into receivership uh, with the state itself moving to close the studio down in order to release it from agreements it had made with film workers through the trade unions. So this strike, this strike has been written about before, but I'm confident that some of the materials I've managed to uncover in the archives uh, mentioned earlier add a lot of nuance to the uh, historical record of, of this uh, part of film history in Ireland. And these actions, I think, towards the end, with the studios placed quite deliberately into receivership. It's also a striking example of what David Harvey refers to as state collusion with capital to crush organized labor. Uh, So that incident represents, you know, a large part of my account of the 1960s. So faced with this difficulty, I suppose, uh, the 1970s were all about securing access to the work that might be available, and part of this research focuses on this part of the research focuses on a really extraordinarily successful series of events, starting with the formation of an organisation called the Irish Film Workers Association, which brought together film workers and producers uh, alike in the quest to build an industry which was based partly on television advertising production, which had become quite a lucrative sub-industry in itself. And this, of course, because of the large market available on RTE television, which had been on the air now for, uh, you know, over a decade, since 1961, and now had the ability to support a sizable market for uh, domestic advertising. However, many uh, Irish ad agencies at the time were in the habit of going abroad, mostly to the UK, to make adverts for the Irish market. But when the Irish Transport and General, Trans- uh, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union invited film workers uh, into the union uh, en masse, this eventually secured the ad industry for Irish workers. Uh, with the cooperation of another section of the union representing people working at RTE itself, who refused to put on the air any ads that were not made by Irish production companies. So the result, almost overnight, was a production market worth, I think at the time, about £5 million a year, quite sizable, and enough to sustain the small filmmaking community which existed uh, at the time. So, having secured this vital source of everyday work, film workers now had the confidence, I suppose, to lobby for the next logical step, uh, which was a formal state film policy underpinned by legislation and financial support, as was the case in most other European countries. Uh, And this was achieved with the establishment in 1984 of the Irish Film Board, which of course is now Screen Ireland. Other developments in the 80s centred around the changing political economy of TV drama production with a growing amount of RTE drama produced outside of that organisation for a variety of reasons, some of them purely financial, but some also to do with privatisation and the decline in... Uh, public service broadcasting principles, as part of the general zeitgeist, I suppose, in the 1980s. And one of my goals in this research, of course, is to track the screen industries against the prevailing social and economic conditions, you know, during different eras. The 1980s also saw the introduction of a new kind of industry subsidy through the Section 35 tax credit. Again, partly the result of sustained film worker and film producer lobby. Uh, the decade was also notable for the first major agreements drawn up between uh, unions and producers. Too detailed to go into those now, but these agreements are interesting documents that tell a lot, I think, about the kind of pay and conditions enjoyed by film workers at different times. And part of my project involves tracking these agreements and how they change over time. On then to the 1990s, a period I'm I'm kind of uh, describing as peak union as the SIP2 film section membership reaches uh, 1,619 in 1996, uh, the highest it had ever been until possibly uh, the current era. And the strength of the union is marked, I suppose, during the decade by a number of additional labor agreements between film section and filmmakers Ireland, uh, which is the immediate precursor of Screen Producers Ireland, as, as we know the organisation today. And These agreements solidified customs and practices around the length of the working day, organi- uh, overtime ra- rates, uh, uh, and all kinds of really, I suppose, mundane individual details like travel and meal allowances that nevertheless add up to a very rich and intricate picture of what it looks like to be a film worker during this decade. Another very interesting development in the 1990s was uh, the opening in Connemara, of all places, of a new, of a new studio operation, Concord & Ish, uh, by the veteran American film producer Roger Corman. And I presented, of course, previously at the SCARF Forum last year uh, on this, this part of the research, which I characterized as a kind of notable example of mobile uh, capital contingently and conditionally resident in Ireland for the capture of subsidies. And, you know, Corman attracted quite a lot of public money. However, this development also represented the beginnings of a two tier industry uh, because the low rates of pay available at Corman Studios were, you know, very different to the high rates available in the industry's epicenter uh, on the other side of the country in Dublin and Wicklow. Also in the 90s, we see. Union agreements for freelance workers begin to come under pressure from EU competition law, which is, you know, a fairly technical matter that we won't get into uh, at this point. And so we enter the 21st century then, which is a period I characterise as post-union, as membership enters a long period of decline from that 1996 peak, before rebounding, as we'll see shortly. Excuse me. And I focus, I suppose, on a number of issues during this period. One is the quest for a new pay agreement for actors, a negotiation that began in the year 2000 but uh, didn't actually end until 2016. So, yeah, you know, a really long drawn out process. And these negotiations offer an opportunity to look at the question of intellectual property rights and, particu- and particularly who owns the screen performance? Is it the actor who carries it off or the producer who pays for it? You know, this is a big question and actors wanted to introduce a system similar to what prevails in the U.S., you know, a residual payment system which entitles the actor and other creative and craft workers to effectively be paid again, anytime the screen product film or television drama is sold into a new market or maybe re-released with a new technology like DVD or, you know, later streaming services like Netflix and Amazon at the moment. So, you know, this is a really interesting negotiation. We also see more problems with the Competition Act uh, used to invalidate uh, voiceover agreements uh, in the radio and TV platforms. And, uh, uh, cinema commercial industries so again an interesting interplay between film tv and advertising industries then we see a really uh you know another interesting development with a new union agreement in 2010 known as the shooting crew agreement and this gets into trouble over its attempts to counter membership erosion by turning the film industry into a closed shop a uh, quest that ultimately failed. You know, membership continued to decline, although it's difficult to put exact figures on this decline because SIPTU stopped publishing the numbers early in the decade, suggesting of course that the numbers weren't good. But in the face of this, this, this decline, another remarkable development with workers based at Ardmore, Bally Henry, and other studio locations creating a new organisation the Irish Film Workers Association, confusingly the same name but not related at all to the early 1970s uh, group of the same name. And this new uh, Film Workers Association registers itself as a trade union in late 2015, uh, which turns out to be quite a, a seismic development, having repercussions to the present day, which brings us to this current period and the research that that, that will complete this evolving narrative. I'm calling this period Reunion uh, because this new Film Workers Association sets in motion a series of events that eventually leads to quite a remarkable uplift in Siptu's declining fortunes. This begins with an appearance uh, by the new IFWA at a Committee hearing into working conditions in the industry. Uh, there's a number of criticisms made of working practices in the uh, industry and indeed the operation of the Section 481 tax credit, uh, which by now is providing fundis- funding to the industry of over hundred million euros a year. So uh, any criticism of Section 481 tends to be met with a reaction from the industry and the IFWA claims brought film workers, uh, prompted film workers to reorganize first through a number of guilds representing occupations as diverse as directors and writers and editors, uh, uh, location managers, production accountants, etc. So these guilds were coordinated by an umbrella organization called Screen Guilds Ireland to encourage members to rejoin CIP2 in order to counteract the threat to the industry that IFRA seemed to represent, uh, resulting in new labour agreements just signed a few months ago at the 2020 shooting crew agreement. So uh, obviously this narrative is still evolving, uh and it's I suppose illustrates the latest rotation in the boom to bust cycle for trade union fortunes in in the screen industries. And finally, one of the final stages of the research would be to track and try to evaluate the impact of COVID-19 on screen industry work and working conditions. Final slide we look at just kind of uh, summarizes and sets out how some of this narrative works as a political economy, you know, a set of power relations involving workers, producers, and state institutions. And this just summarizes the narrative, you know, the 60s, a decade of powerlessness, the 70s, then labor organization with access to work secured, a period of consolidation in the 80s and 90s, then The uh, Celtic Tiger in the 2000s and, and, you know, a a concomitant trade union decline, which is kind of against the grain, which is also an interesting uh, process to evaluate. And then the 2010s, where the industry survives, the Celtic Tiger bust with workers, producers and the state collaborating to revive labour organisations to protect Section 41, arguably. I'll end it there, thanks for listening, this is quite a whistle stop uh, tour through the uh, last 50 years and I'm obviously happy to take any questions and listen to your comments at this point. Thanks very much. Thank you Dennis, that was
0: just Amazing, that was so informative. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Every time I hear you talk, it's just, I feel like I've just had a class, a very informative class. (laughs) And then um, it's amazing, yeah. Um, Dennis, uh, I'm sure we have lots to talk about now. Um, And um, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll kick off our conversation here uh, while people uh, write down their questions in the Q&A. Um, Dennis, you've mentioned your, um, your experience in, the, in, in this practical um, world of filmmaking. And how, how does that play into your academic analysis? Do you think it helps? Because I've always wondered about, you know, um, uh, when people have experience from the practical side, how does that work into your own academic work?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's, you know, I think it does help, but it can also get in the way, you know, mm-hmm. in, in other ways as well. I mean, it definitely helps, I suppose, for, for, for a start, it kind of motivates, well, it's kind of a circular thing. I suppose I got into that work initially because of my interest in the screen industries, but then being a screen industry worker, even at the kind of, you know, I'm, we're talking a pretty mi- mundane level in the case of my own experience Mm -hmm. but it does really help you have an appreciation of the technical qualities that that are involved in Mm -hmm. the the technical processes that are involved in the work and it also i suppose gives me a natural bias towards the kind of production side of this kind of media industry studies triangle you know this kind of text Mm -hmm. this text and textual analysis then there's audience studies and then there's production studies mm-hmm, so yeah very much it very much draws me towards production studies. Mm-hmm, the yeah vertex I suppose of that triangle mm-hmm, uh, right but so anytime I look at a film I tend to see it in terms of the work involved you know it's it, it definitely condition <laughs> it definitely conditions what I'm seeing you tend to be see or be more aware of I suppose what's happening behind the camera mm-hmm. uh, and uh, which is, if, you know, it adds to the pleasure. But of course, I'm also interested in the, the text. And you know, I suppose sometimes you give the wrong impression that you're not interested in the actual story that's being told, which of course I am. Uh, and in the representations that are uh, depicted. But you know, I'm also interested in how you know the formal processes that are the formal processes that underlie that. I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating field. Yes. For sure, thanks, Ennis. So we do have a question here, it's from Donald. Um, He says, it's just a simple question. What will the new reality be post-COVID? Yeah. And uh, is the industry flexible enough to adapt? So Mm. let's talk COVID now. Well,
1: look, all I can say is, I mean, that part of the research is very much ongoing, I think. there are, there have been there have, have been some very interesting responses to COVID uh, so far. Of course, that has involved the government. I think throwing money at the problem by giving a lot more money to the Film Board to implement certain uh, practices, uh, which you know the, the, the Screen Ireland has then kind of you know filtered down to the productions that are being made. And I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to be on a film set like last year during one of these uh, first productions to go back into production uh, during COVID. And it was quite striking at the time how, how difficult this would be in, in the situation where people, and of course at the time, there was no quest, there was no uh, real you know, there was no vaccine in sight, so there was no real kind of sense of, you know, what, what conditions might be like in the years. So I, mean, I think, obviously, with the vaccine and hopefully the vaccine being successful, you know, through through time, I think it will allow these processes to be quite minimal in terms of how they impact on the actual production process, but it does make you aware very much of how close together people do actually uh, have to be in, do- in indoor environments, uh, especially in Ireland where there's quite a lot of location production made, uh, you know, as well as uh, studio production. But you know, I mean, the, the, the set I was on involved some really confined spaces, and I felt quite uncomfortable myself, actually, uh, in the situation. Uh, you know, people wear masks, but they clip them off during, you know, the cameras are rolling. This actual production I was working on uh, happened to have COVID as part, you know, it took place against a pandemic background, so they were able to use outdoor locations, uh, you know, and the fact that people were, were wearing masks on the street when they were doing outdoor locations was kind of allowed to be part of the story. But sorry, to get back to the question, is the industry flexible enough? I think the Irish industry, to, uh, historically has proven itself to be extremely flexible to almost anything. Uh, certainly, and the funding involved is certainly generous enough, I think, to be able to help people. And certainly the training programs that have, have, have are ongoing and have been, were implemented really quickly, have been quite well funded by the state. Uh, you know, this is all public money, of course, we have to, to remind ourselves that, and maybe ask, you know, to what extent Does it become maybe not worth it in some situations? I think that's one of the the questions. But I think, yes, the industry will be flexible enough as long as it continues to be funded in the way it has been.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, we have a couple more questions here. One is from Ruth and then she asks, Dennis, can I ask what the position of union rates is for foreign productions shooting in Ireland as part of a co-production arrangement? Can they bring their own crew, uh, and how does that affect pay and other entitlements?
1: Great question. Uh, yes, uh, foreign productions can bring their own crew, uh, and they tend to bring uh, obviously, obviously the lead cast. I mean, the, the, as most people know, I mean the biggest. The biggest part of a budget tends to be the lead actor uh, in any kind of, especially uh, any Hollywood production. So the, the like the big above the line, uh, headline creative people, you know, especially, so the lead actors and if the director is a household name, you know, the, the directors fee as well and and obviously writers. So uh, yes, uh, these incoming productions do tend to bring their own uh, uh, Main that the main creative nucleus, uh, uh, I suppose, the kind of above the line people, uh, director, photography, uh, writer, and and cast and directors tend to come with the production. But also, you know, the less kind of, and, and then the more kind of behind the scenes uh, film uh, roles are filled by uh, Irish uh, film crew. Uh, union race is a really interesting thing. And the new union agreement just signed a few months ago, the 2020 agreement introduces, uh, there's actually a five tier pay scale, depending on the budget of the, the production. So an incoming foreign production, if it has a budget high enough, and I don't have the figures to hand, but I mean, they, they need to be huge budgets. So the likes of uh, the Star Wars uh, uh, films that were filmed there and uh, maybe maybe Foundation, which is, is 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 has been filming in Limerick, uh, the likes of the budgets involved there would entitle film workers to a kind of higher rate than when they're working on certainly working on lower budget Irish indigenous productions, but also on the kind of mid range international TV and film. So it's really only the super productions that attract the highest rates. But all, okay. then all of this, well, I won't get into how that works from the section for anyone. It's just too boring to go into the actual numbers, but, but, but yeah. Uh, so yes, foreign productions do attract generally higher rates.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Dennis, we have quite a lot of questions to cover in 10 minutes. So let's, <laughs> let's try to get them all in. Uh, okay. We have a question from Patrick. Um, uh, what role did politicians play Especially ministers for communications, such as Michael Higgins, uh, who was also an SIPTU member.
1: Yeah, well, Michael D. Higgins, who now, of course, is the president, was very influential. I mean, the Irish Film Board. Screen production in Ireland wouldn't, screen production in Ireland wouldn't happen without, you know, the set of events that started with the, you know, the, the screen, the, the, the Irish Film Board in 1984, which is, you know, it was a long process, which, you know, my history will go into how that was set up. But the, the Irish Film Board was started, was in, implemented in 1984, but then shut down again in 1987 because of financial difficulties during the 1980s the government just didn't want to fund it anymore and that that could have been the end uh, you know of of the 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 I suppose the you know the, the quest to build an industry in Ireland which has always been a very difficult um, you know fraught process but but Michael D Higgins was very influential in the film board being then reopened Uh, after a a period of about six years when there was no film board. Uh, In 1993, following the success at the Oscars of all places, when uh, uh, The Crying Game, actually, Neil Jordan's film, uh, won a a number of Oscars, uh, this kind of prompted a a, a debate about whether it had been a good idea to shut down the film board this suppose you could argue well well look what happened without a film board we have this oscar-winning drama so maybe we don't need it but i suppose uh michael d higgins was very anxious and this is the way he articulated at the time you know that irish stories could be told by ourselves and not through this kind of filtering process uh when 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 our stories are told by film industries from other jurisdictions so he was very influential because he was was Minister for for the Arts at the time in overnight, actually, uh, almost uh, reinstating the film board. And the rest is history, actually, in terms of just how, you know, with the Celtic Tiger then starting to kick in and a general upsurge in screen production all over the world. And, you know, uh, an investment in studio production in Ireland as well at the same time, you know, we got a lot of incoming production. from that period on, which has tended to uh, underpin the industry uh, ever since. And of course, all of that incoming production, highly motivated by the incredibly generous tax subsidies. So ambitious politicians plus tax subsidies equals, yes, we'd love to come here and make your films, make our films with you.
0: Okay, that's great. So from Maria O'Brien, we have a question here. She says, I would like to hear Dennis talk more about his document analysis approach. How much of your analysis of the various policy documents and reports is shaped by your knowledge of the wider political and social concerns that might not be obvious on a reading? And how much Mm -hmm. is taken up with analysis of the content in the documents themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, the documents, it depends on the documents you're talking about, but, but it's, I mean, it's a brilliant question. And I, I don't know if I can, I don't even know if I can answer it because for me, I mean, my, I wouldn't say I do a formal kind of discourse analysis approach to these documents. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, it's, 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 I suppose this is this was one this was one of I suppose my greatest concerns in revisiting this project, uh, and, I, and it was incredibly gratifying actually that the IRC funded this postdoc because I suppose at the time I really did kind of doubt my own ability actually to. Uh, to, to do to justify the kind of document the analysis of these historic documents. Now, if we're talking, we're, if we're talking. And there's there's a number of different documents we're talking about. Uh, so the documents in the National Archive, which provide a kind of almost daily uh, analysis of the events in the 1960s, uh, really does present a really rich picture that wasn't available before. So. My approach to analysing those, you know, I, I really don't know how to intellectualise it, to, for want of a better word, and you know, I, I'm sorry to have to say that because uh, sometimes I feel that I like I don't know what I'm doing with this case, but I'm just trying to do justice to the people who wrote this down, I suppose, and try to see what those concerns are. But the part of the question that asks about, you know the need to have a knowledge of the social and political conditions at the time i think this is really crucial and you know and, and i did i did and i continue to to you know spend a lot of time you know trying to read about and understand the uh, economic the various phases of the economic history of ireland you know especially since the 1950s and it's been you know the 1950s represented the opening up of the irish economy after a long period of kind of more inward looking kind of you know uh, self sufficiency uh kind of for political reasons so this kind of the film industry coincides quite naturally with the kind of subsequent turning to foreign direct investment as you know the main way to provide employment in this country which has been a structural problem historically Mm -hmm. so Does this kind of interplay, I suppose, between this economic history and employment and the film industry kind of tracking that and in some ways acting as a kind of bellwether, I think, for a lot of industrial processes and certainly a lot of employment practices and the whole kind of freelance film industry has a lot of resonances to the kind of gig economy uh, Mm -hmm. thing that's happening with lots of other industries at the moment, so.
0: Right, yeah. uh, Maurice. Sorry, I'm sorry, not
1: have a
0: better answer. That's okay. Maurice is actually interacting with you in the chat, saying that she's delighted to hear your hesitancy, hesitancy on on her question on documents, and she'll get in touch with you later on. Right. Yes. Yeah, share some you. things. <laughs> okay. So we have two more questions, and we have three minutes. Then, <laughs> so one is from Stephen Boyd. He asks, uh, "What are the major class differences between film workers in contemporary film production culture?"
1: What are the major class differences in terms of in production culture? Yeah. Well, in terms of, are we talking about in terms of the jobs carried out, or in terms of other? Aspects. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly, I suppose the main. It's 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 impossible to kind of draw draw lines. I think around this too too clearly, but uh, certainly, I think the main differences are between the what people tend to think of as creative roles, then, which tend to be middle class in terms of the people doing them in Ireland, anyway. I'm not sure if this is the case internationally. And I'm I'm, I'm not doing a comparative analysis, which would be really interesting. Uh, Then the technical role and more technician roles, which in Ireland, I think, unusually, are probably more middle class than in other countries. I'm talking about camera operators, sound crew, uh, from personal experience, and certainly when you look at, it, I mean, some of the d- document analysis involves looking at, you know, the lists of union members at different periods, and, and trying to make, uh, and you can make quite interesting uh, observations about where people live, you know, uh, and, and make kind of at least a, a rough guess at what their their social class might be, and you can see actually in the sixties and seventies and 80s, how middle class the industry is in terms of those technical roles. And then the more working class roles tend to be the traditional construction roles like carpentry, uh, electricians, metal workers, uh, set director, decorators, painters, plasters, all those kind of traditional craft uh, roles, which are very important in the film industry and collectively make you know, a really important contribution to the kind of, you know, dreamlike world, and it's kind of suspension of disbelief that we need to be able to affect to 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 be drawn into the story. A lot of it is that kind of set construction and design. Uh, and the design the, the, the design roles of course also being quite middle class. But sorry, that's again, uh, I'm not sure how to answer the question because there's what you do and there's also attitudes and, and you know production, culture self in terms of how people approach work is another really kind of big Mm -hmm. question you could ask
0: okay dennis i think it's a terrible answer (laughs) (laughs) that's okay no that was great um i think people have just been you know responding very nicely to your work and i'm sure they can get in touch with you if they have further questions unfortunately we just ran out of time for more questions here but uh, you're, um, I'm sure they can get in touch and you can, you can just develop the conversation from there, right?
1: Absolutely, I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested. My email address is, well, it's, it's, on, the, it's on the school website, but it's very easy. It's at tcd.ie And I, yeah, I'm always delighted to talk to anyone about my work or about their work, if there's anything, you know, if it intersects. At any point, also, and thanks, Maria. I know. Actually, I've just noticed that it was Maria who asked a question in the documents. And, you know, Maria is a good example of the kind of you know, the kind of intersection uh, between different projects that you know, I've been able to have some great conversations with her before in the past. So yeah, thanks and uh, thank you, Kathleen. For the wonderful <laughs> moderation.
0: Uh, That's in, all right. Uh, I want to thank you so much for sharing all this information with us. Your research is always so amazing. It's, it's great to hear. and I wanted to thank everyone here who contributed, who was watching and uh, you know just um, exchanging information with us. It's been a pleasure and everyone in the backstage who' was working towards this event actually working out um and um yeah uh, our last scarf of the year will be next week okay everyone, it's not in two weeks it's next week it's next monday april 19th and uh it will be dr scotty mcqueen he's also from the department of film and he'll be talking to us next monday i hope to see you all then the Hunters
1: of Community. Manuscript, books book and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taiwanese library.
2: As well as being haired. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland
1: through the communities created by Carlson and the changes.
2: The hub is about impact. And awesome. impact. impact. Gü- the hub is for everyone. And the rise of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.